great offers and a great podcast? What a day! Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Nicola Smith of the UK's Telegraph. It's great to be here. And tonight we'll be discussing the KMT and the DPP finalising their respective list of candidates for local leadership positions in November's local elections. A survey showing that 50% of people here in Taiwan believe the United States will definitely or possibly send troops to help defend the island in the event of a cross-strait conflict. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs slamming Beijing for blacklisting and imposing sanctions on Taiwan's top envoy to the United States and several other officials. A dispute over the use of the word Taiwan in the World Pride 2025 event and the Taiwanese-American MasterChef Junior winner giving a high-profile mayoral candidate a cooking lesson. But we'll begin with authorities this week detaining quite a few people here for their alleged involvement in the luring of Taiwanese nationals to Cambodia on the pretext of high-paying jobs. The high-paying jobs, needless to say, don't exist and those advertising them are members of or working with organised crime groups and human traffickers who post the fake job ads with the sole intention of forcing those who choose to travel to Cambodia to take part in well criminal activity. Prosecutors say the victims have their passports seized and are held against their will and face beatings if they refuse to help the criminal gangs. Nine Taiwanese nationals who were lured to Cambodia with lucrative job offers but then held, basically held and forced to work there illegally arrived back in Taiwan this past Sunday after managing to escape from the country. However, it transpired very shortly thereafter that one of those victims was in fact a member of the organised crime gang that had lured them there in the first place. Similar arrests have been reported elsewhere in Taiwan this week and a woman ordered detained by the Zhanghua District Court allegedly led one of the crime gangs and had arranged for nearly 50 Taiwanese citizens to go abroad since May. The Operation C allegedly headed received 100,000 NT per individual sent to Cambodia and a reward of between 10,000 and 16,000 NT for each person sent to Thailand. The Aviation Police Bureau is stepping up efforts to inform people about the fake job scams and those efforts include public service broadcasts being aired on television screens at the international airport speaking to people with tickets to Cambodia in order to verify the reasons for their trips. Now the number of Taiwanese nationals who have been tricked into travelling to Cambodia varies somewhat depending on what news agency you read or who you believe. But Cabinet Spokesman Law Bing Jung on Thursday said that police visited 4,679 households with members aged between 20 and 45 who recently travelled to Cambodia and have not yet returned to Taiwan to determine the, well, the exact number. And Law went on to say that that check concluded that 144 people could be held against their will in Cambodia, while over 200 other people reported that their family members or friends had been recruited for such scams between March and July. And based on those visits, figures show that the total number of Taiwanese nationals lured to Cambodia by job, job scams, rather, totals 373, of which 40 people have now returned home. Now, the Cabinet spokesman said of those lured to Cambodia, 99% were recruited to work in telecom scams, while a few were trafficked for sexual exploitation. So, Brian, I mean, who are these people that are going to Cambodia, and why are they going? Do they not know this is happening? Are they this naive? 
Yeah, so it's thought that a lot of the people going are blue collar. Other some are young people. They have low salaries, and so this is why they are tricked into this, thinking that this is actually a job opportunity、uh, that can make them money within a short period of time. And I think particularly because there is this history of movement now. I think in which some people do travel to Southeast Asia for jobs,、uh, sometimes it's seen as genuine. And I think that's one of those issues in general. What's interesting is that there is a, a rising issue in Taiwan of scams that often prey on the elderly. Often these are investment scams,、uh, offering fake jobs and things like that. But it's interesting to see it this way carried out with regards to human trafficking, because usually that is simply just financial fraud or attempts to confuse someone into transferring money or telling that, for example, that they、uh, ordered something but it didn't go well, so you go through, and so they have to pay some money to this account and that sort of thing. And so this is kind of a new issue, and, and now there's much more attention to this. Yeah, I mean it's a horrible, sad story for for all of the victims who've been. Impacted by this, and and the overarching issue is that this isn't just a Taiwan problem; it's、um, it's a Cambodia problem. In March, you had the embassies of of five、uh, different Asian countries:、uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Pakistan, China, all、um, warning the Cambodian authorities that that this was happening, and that it's not only Taiwanese people who are being duped into these scams and imprisoned and and Abused, but it, it's、um, young Asians from all over the region, and it, it appears that、uh, Cambodia just isn't addressing this problem. And you have to really ask, you know, who's behind this ultimately?、Um, there have been reports that Chinese syndicates are organising、um, all of these kind of scams and, and this whole network of criminality. And if they're being allowed to do so on Cambodian territory, why aren't the authorities doing more about it? And is there any kind of collusion or corruption involved? And, and ultimately, how do you solve the wider problem that, that this has become a huge,、uh, a huge issue in Cambodia itself? And Nicola, why do you think people are going? Obviously, it's made the news here the past couple of weeks. This has been a major thing in the news, but people from Taiwan are still going to Cambodia. I mean, I, I think Brian's right on this. That the, the job opportunities for a lot of young people in Taiwan itself are not seen as appealing enough.、Uh, salaries are still very low.、Uh, it's very hard for, for graduates to, to get jobs and for you know any young people to to secure a decent salary and、um, promotion prospects, a, a good career path. And I think you know people are being lured by. Increasingly intelligent、um, scams and, and, and promises of better prospects. And yes, I do think that more needs to be done to warn people. I mean, it could be that you know, people are still going because they just don't realise that this is what they're walking into. And Brian, of course, Nicola mentioned it could be partly the Cambodian authorities' fault. But what about the authorities here? I mean, what could they do to stop it this end? That's right, and there's also been some criticism, for example, from the、uh, KMT Taipei City Councilor Angelica Ying, of the、uh, response from the government in Taiwan or in the police rather, in the sense that there seems to be more efforts focused on preventing more people from going over than there are of rescuing the victims. And this is another issue which is co-、uh, complicated by the lack of diplomatic recognition between Cambodia and Taiwan, as well as which police cooperation also encounters some difficulties, supposedly. Um, but then I think then it's、uh, it's one of those things in which because it became such a large public outcry now there is a push to have efforts to rescue these、uh, people.、Uh, but I think also what's going to happen is that one sees politicians trying to edge in on this to make their name known. For example, there was an incident 
yesterday involving three Taipei, uh, no, sorry, no, three KMT politicians came to an argument with police at the airport because they were bringing a victim, a 19-year-old victim, back from Cambodia. And so it's a question of who was in the right exactly. It could actually be the politicians were in the right. For example, the victim may be just tired and doesn't want to be questioned right now and went through a lot, uh, etc. But then I think now it has become a political thing and people are trying to make sort of uh, their names known or better known off of this. Of course, Brian, there's an issue of, like, were they victims or were they actually involved in the criminal gangs posing as victims when they come back? That's right. And so this is also thought to be another reason why some victims, quote-unquote, did not actually come forward because they have histories involving fraud or criminality and so forth. And uh, this is reported that there are Taiwanese involved in this operation as well. That is often cases of Taiwanese selling other Taiwanese. Uh, there's arrest of a Bamboo Union gang member, uh, Zhang An, the, the head of the Chinese Unification Promotion Party, which has links to the Bamboo Union, uh, also condemned this, etc. But I think there are definitely people that are operating as intermediaries who are Taiwanese. And there are people that are somewhere between victim and victimizer here. And Nicola, do you think that the authorities here should do more to clamp down on this sort of court-wise, legal-wise? When they catch these people, they shouldn't be given bail. They should be basically processed and simply not disappear, but to be sentenced to, like, lengthy prison terms. Yes, absolutely. If they're guilty of crimes, then yes. I mean, this kind of trafficking um, destroys lives. You know, it it destroys family family lives. People don't know where their relatives are. So it's a very serious crime. And if people are given a fair trial and, you know, found to be guilty, then of course they should pay the price for that. And, And they shouldn't just be... Um, let her into the list, like you know, to 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 do the same thing again. Uh, I mean, there have been um, stories for reports for many years now about Taiwanese involvement in these kind of online scams, and often it's it's become a controversy because people have been deported back to China rather than to Taiwan, and I I think that sometimes clouds the issue of of the crime. That's taking place like you know of course nobody should be sent back to china but if they if people who are involved in these kind of scams are brought back to taiwan then they should absolutely face the you know they should face legal proceedings and brian we've seen the, the aviation police at the airport holding signs up i mean <laughs> i mean this is going to work I feel like it's a response to almost everything. For example, telling people not to bring pork products into Taiwan as well. I mean, they just hold up the signs and hope that deters people and etc. Um, I think it's helpful just having broader awareness of this from people. And there are a few cases, I think about a dozen or so, of individuals that were persuaded not to travel on to Cambodia because they did not know that the uh, they didn't know what company they'd be working for when they got there and other details like that. And so airport staff persuade them not to go. Uh, but I think it's also much more difficult than that because it's not always just Cambodia or one country, for example. I mean, there's the belief then that some numbers are not showing up because individuals are being transported over the border by land to Cambodia from third countries, such as Thailand or, or other places in Southeast Asia. And so it's actually a little harder than that. And so I think associating this specifically with one country may not necessarily be the most helpful thing at present either, though that's become the case in media discourse. And moving on now, the KMT and the DPP on Wednesday of this week finalised their respective list of candidates for local leadership positions in the November local elections. And the final names came as no surprise, as new Taipei Mayor Ho Yo E and Taichung Mayor Lu Shouyan will both be seeking re-election for the KMT. Now, speaking after a meeting at the KMT's Central Standing Committee, Ho said that he will be reminding voters of his administration's achievements over the past four years and detailing his platform for the next four years. And he also said 
said that he believes maintaining New Taipei's progress and the good lives of its residents will guarantee an election victory. Ho's main rival is the DPP's Lin Jialong. Meanwhile, Lu Xiaoyan told reporters that she believes voters will make a fair choice when they compare her policies and leadership skills to those of the other candidates in Taichung. Now, Lu's main challenger will be Deputy Legislative Speaker Tsai Chi Chung of the DPP. And KMT Chairman Eric Ju is describing Ho and Lu as the party's best picks, given their achievements as the heads of the local governments in the two cities over the past four years. Meanwhile, the DPP this week confirmed that lawmaker Zhang Yunpeng will be the party's candidate in the Taoyuan mayoral race. Of course, Zhang replaces former Shinzu city mayor Lin Zhejian, who withdrew from the Taoyuan mayoral race after weeks of controversy about his National Taiwan University master's thesis, which was, of course plagiarised allegedly according to a committee so Brian no surprises there and where should we say here do we, do we think that Lu and Ho will beat the two DPP candidates Lin and Tsai uh, they are definitely the incumbents so they have the advantage there particularly Ho Yu is in a strong position that so strong that people tout him as a potential presidential candidate for the KMT in the future and so it's not surprising then that the two are confirmed and they're among the last confirmed for the KMT when there's only two months or so before elections so that is quite interesting that occurred so late um, Lucerio, on the other hand, has had more scandals in recent years that have affected approval, but at the same time, it does look like she's not really facing a challenge. What's interesting this time around is I think overall the confirmation process from the Pan-Green camp occurred quite slow. It was actually quite slow to announce which camps will be running. So it feels like almost this race is more going down to party ID and which party you plan on voting for rather than the individual candidate. Because when you do confirm candidates late, that doesn't give them that much time to campaign, for example. I mean, Nicola, do you think this, this Brian said they, they, they confirmed them late? But then, of course, there is 100 days to go to the election. And do you think it really matters that Ho and Lu were sort of confirmed so late in the process? I mean, I, I think looking at it from the outside, it, it feels like we've been permanently this year in election mode for, for the local elections. It seems like the longest election campaign ever, um, uh, even with the Tory party election. Uh, campaign going on in the UK, which is interminable. Um, so, I, no, I don't think it, it does matter. Maybe for the, on an individual level for the candidates, I do. I do think that probably makes a big difference for them because it's, it's such a lot of work to do a campaign for the voters. Not so much. I do agree with Brian. I think it'll come down to party uh, party identity, and I think it'll be interesting to see the impact of external politics and international politics in the local elections as well and, and whether people will be voting about you know kind of local issues um sewage education etc or whether they'll be choosing uh, on a party basis based on um you know external factors like the the rising tensions you know across the strait or um how the government is handling the the, the pandemic and brian of course what about lawmaker Zhang Yunpeng? I mean, he's sort of... The DPP have basically thrown him to the wolves, some could argue. Yeah, I think the other factor with him is that he was considered as a candidate early on for the DPP in Taurin, but he kind of hung back and wanted to be asked to do that, and as a result, ended up going to Lin instead. And now he is running. But there's also reports that the DPP, and some members of the DPP in Taurin are not too happy about that either, and so there might be further splits. So it looks like both the DPP and the KMT have experienced a lot of splits in their choice of candidates and leading to infighting. And that might lead to difficulties mobilizing. Uh, so Chang is at a disadvantage because the DPP was polling quite well before this scandal in Taurin, despite Taurin being traditionally pan-blue territory. 
On the other hand, his opponent, Simon Chang, uh, didn't really make as much of the scandal against Lin as he could have. He's actually been criticized, for example, for seemingly being not so present with regards to campaigning. And so it is possible that will help Chang, but uh, it's also that to be seen. But I mean, do you think possibly Simon Jung, the former premier, is smiling at this nomination? Uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But I think uh, it is one of those things in which I don't think he actually campaigned as much as he could to date. And so I think he also really needs to step much more into it if he wants to win. Um, Chang, I did enjoy how he announced it, though. He posted a picture of himself carrying a very large hammer. He has uh, some very odd memes on the internet. Maybe he'll win because of his memes. Well, Taran's an older voter demographic, so I wonder about that. But there are more young people living in Taran nowadays, so I think that's another factor. And, of course, talking of young people, there's also a referendum on Election Day coming up, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so I think that also complicates things in terms of how uh, the relation between the referendum and elections will play out, because the KMT was able to leverage on referendums in the past successfully. The KMT is effectively hoping to recreate what the circumstances that occurred in 2018, in which it actually did quite well. Um, and this was by linking various uh, issues are voted on along with the election campaigning. Uh, the the changes of the law in the sin- time since then don't mean that every election and referendum will occur in the same time frame. But in that sense, the KMT wants to do well in local elections because voters maybe are punishing the DPP for domestic policies, such on economic issues and that kind of thing. The KMT, I think, also has an advantage sometimes at the local level elections because its networks at the local level can be quite extensive. And Nicola, I mean, the referendum, obviously, about lowering the voting age. I mean, do you think it's pretty much a shoe-in? I mean, all the parties agree on it. It should be. I don't see any reason why you should keep the voting age at 21. I mean, it's, it's very obvious that young people at the age of 18 are, are capable of having their own political views and, and voting. Um, so I don't see why that should be an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting this time around, there are 760,000 first-time voters. And so if you do lower the voting age, you do have much more uh, younger voters. And younger voters are thought to slant more pan-green. So I think this will be another factor going forward. And so the KMT was criticized, for example, in the past as well, appearing, at least uh, trying to present the appearance as though it supports lowering the voting age, not actually wanting to do this, knowing that this is just a disadvantage. And moving on again now, the Institute for National Defence and Security Research this week released the results of a survey begging the question, do you think the United States would send troops to help Taiwan in the event of a cross-strait war? Now, the poll was conducted by the National Zhengzhou University's Election Study Centre from August the 3rd through the 7th, just after Nancy Pelosi left Taiwan. And it showed that 50% of people here believe that the United States will definitely or possibly send troops to help defend the island in the event of a war. Now, according to the Institute, the results indicate that people now have more confidence in Washington regarding possible military intervention if Beijing attacks Taiwan. The same question was also asked in similar surveys in September of last year and March of this year. Some 57% of respondents in the September poll asked, answered definitely or possibly when asked whether the US would send troops, but that figure dropped to 40% in the March poll. And one researcher is being cited as saying the March results indicate that the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February negatively impacted the Taiwanese public's belief that the US would send troops to help defend Taiwan. So, Nicola, 50% of people here think that Uncle Sam will come in and save Taiwan in some shape or form. I was surprised at how low that is, actually, given how uh, important Taiwan is to the US and to the international community, that strategically um, looking at, first of all, it's position in the first island chain and how important it is to the U.S. in the Pacific policy and also because of its dominance in the semiconductor 
industry and supply chain globally and, and also looking at, you know, the Taiwan Strait and how important that is to global trade. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite surprised that the Taiwanese are as sceptical as, you know, 50% don't believe that the, the U.S. would intervene in any way. Um, and it's interesting that it has gone up a little bit since Ukraine, but the Ukraine war is very, very it's a very different scenario. I mean, obviously, you can draw parallels with, with Taiwan. Both are threatened by authoritarian neighbours who want to seize their territory. Um, but there was never really a, a, a strong question of whether the US would intervene with troops in Ukraine. And I, I think that's very much in the balance with Taiwan. But the other issue is really, you know, there's so many strands to this debate and and there have been a lot of strong voices out of Washington that are saying that Taiwan also has to do more. Um, you know, maybe the other 50% who don't believe uh, the, that the US would intervene in a strong way believe that Taiwan should do more itself in terms of, um, you know, building up its defence capabilities, in terms of conscription and building up its own armed forces and also just preparing the the Taiwanese um, population and public to be more resilient in the face of the crisis. Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's quite interesting that we have these results. Uh, it could be that Ukraine did have an effect. Ukraine played an issue, uh, the, uh, it served as a frame issue to repackage a lot of these long-standing concerns regarding cross-strait tensions. Um, so Taiwan could project itself onto Ukraine, etc. And I think because the U.S. did play a role there in terms of providing arms, this may be why it's seen as reassuring. On the other hand, there's also the discourse kind of going around now, particularly from the KMT and Pan Blue Camp, that the U.S. would not become involved in a conflict. It would only seek to provide arms to Taiwan and without trying to get itself drawn into what would be a bloody and perhaps messy war. Uh, I also do think that the recent visits by U.S. politicians, that is reassuring, because now this is a regular news item. The Pelosi visit was not really anticipated a lot ahead of time by much of the general public. There was not a lot of sense of it before 48 hours before she touched down. Uh, but at the same time, that a high-ranking official did come to Taiwan. I mean, some polling does show public approval of that, and I think that these shows of support are seen as significant. Um, but then in terms of the overall way in which the U.S. would respond, that's another question. And it's also interesting to think about how the public perceives Japan responding to a possible invasion from China, and that there's also faith that Japan would perhaps become involved in some way. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the U.S. has its, um, its policy of strategic ambiguity, which is designed to to make China think twice about the consequences of invading Taiwan, and, and the, there is an argument that that is now outdated, but the facts remain that the cost to the US and the international community of a, an invasion of Taiwan would be so great that it would be very difficult to stand by and just supply arms and, and not have any kind of intervention. Japan, as Brian said, is, is you know very much on edge because an invasion of Taiwan would, would really impact them in, in so many ways. Um, and and so I think it's just a very different scenario to what we're seeing in Ukraine, where we have had very str- a very strong international response uh, without putting troops on the ground. Uh, but we've also seen a strong response from uh, private industry uh, towards Russia as well. And I, I think that would be key in any kind of crisis in Taiwan, as to not only how government's response, but how um, private commercial uh, organizations respond and, and whether they would take 
um, any kind of action against China uh, and, you know, risk risk their businesses in, on Chinese territory to, to make a stand. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to uh, deterrence as well. And, you know, what what we do just now, what Taiwan does just now, what the US does just now, whether it will be an effective deterrent to prevent China from from um, taking the most drastic course of action and invading. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday slammed Beijing for blacklisting and imposing sanctions on Taiwan's top envoy to the United States and several other people, saying the move is an attempt to intimidate Taiwan activists and it will only prove to be counterproductive. The statement came after the Taiwan Work Office of the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee imposed sanctions against Xiaobi Kim and other Taiwanese nationals on Beijing's list of stubborn Taiwan independence separatists. The other people included national Security Council Secretary General Wellington Gu, Deputy Legislative Speaker Tsai Chi Chung, DPP Caucus Whip Ke Cheng Ming, DPP Deputy Secretary General Lin Fei Fan, and New Power Party Chairwoman Chen Jiahua. The individuals on the list and their family members are banned from entering China, Hong Kong, and Macau, and their affiliated institutions are restricted from cooperating with related organizations and individuals in China. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council described the sanctions as being illegal, saying they will prove ineffective because Taiwan and China are not under each other's jurisdictions. While Xiaobi Kim took to Twitter to scoff at the move, writing if Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party thinks they can restrict Taiwan's international space and stifle the voices of the Taiwanese people by sanctioning us, then they're wrong. And she went on to say, where there is oppression there will be resistance. And that message was posted above a photograph of a rather angry cat, Brian. <laughs> so this more referenced the whole cat warrior discourse in that sense. And so I think a lot of these these uh, actions from China, they, they don't always work out well in the sense that they are mocked by the public. And so, for example, uh, because of these seven people being sanctioned, you even had pro-independence politicians joking that, well, Taiwan didn't make the cut this time. I would have actually liked to be on this list. Chen Boy, for example, the former Taiwan State Building Party legislator, uh, he posted a satirical message saying that, well, I didn't make the cut this time. I didn't do, my, uh, do as much as I could have. I'm sorry to my fans. I'll try better next time, as though it was some kind of award ceremony. Um, so it doesn't really have a substantive impact on the pan-green politicians that probably would not have traveled or tried to do business in China anyway. Um, their family members, that also applies to them, that they probably would not have risked this. It is actually true that there are some pro-independence politicians, overtly, or more pan-green politicians that have uh, family members that work in China. For example, Ke Zhen, the uh, director, for example, involved in social movements and part of the New Power Party formerly. His son is actually an actor that works in the Chinese market. But uh, it's not always the case. And I think then, regards to this, uh, it's interesting to see China rolling out sanctions that are targeting people. I mean, before this, there were also sanctions targeting Pelosi and her family after the visit to Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that the individuals affected are unfazed by this. But, uh, I mean, it's essentially a tokenistic move by China. I don't think any of these people who are going to be wandering into China are going to Macau and Hong Kong. In any case, but as Brian says, it does also impact their families. I, I think there's still a question... Uh, with China um, sanctioning so many people around the world, I think there is still a question about whether it might start becoming risky for people to transit through certain countries that are pro-China in their policies, and you know whether that might make travel a little bit 
harder in future. We haven't really seen that happen yet, but um, you know, we, we certainly saw um, dissidents being kidnapped in, in Thailand at one point. So, I mean, that's that's always kind of lurking in the background. But I, I do wonder whether China just has a, a bigger strategy at play here, and and you know, kind of looking back to. Uh, what Beijing said last year about um, warning Taiwanese companies that they would be impacted, that their business would be impacted if they supported um, anyone with links to to pro-independent policies, that was their word. Um, I do wonder whether China will really start to squeeze businesses who are supporting um, politicians who are on these kind of lists and whether that will be used to try and politically manipulate Taiwan in any way, or just, you know, economically as, a, as another arm of, of China's economic coercion strategy. Yeah, I think that's right. I think sanctioning politicians is not necessarily the most helpful there, but sanctioning businessmen or companies and that kind of thing, that could actually have some more impact. Um, at the same time, I also do think that when China does try to economically pressure companies, as we see in these various bans targeting pineapple, grouper, citrus, other products, uh, it causes the Chinese market to be seen as politically risky. And sometimes China's measures are a bit scattershot, targeting companies as pro-independence, for example, when they are actually not, and they donate to both the Pan Green and Pan Blue camps. And I think that also raises that perception, then, that China is just a politically risky market in which the red line doesn't change. But I think that then there's a question, then. I think you see more sanctions directed at individuals, uh, I think, framing it as almost like responding to the U.S. kind of Magnitsky-style sanctions, which includes some Chinese officials. Um, and so I think that's perhaps what China aims to do here. And Nicola, do you think the government here could sanction Chinese officials? I, I mean, they're within their rights to do so. But I mean, what would that? What would they gain from that? Um, I think the government here is doing a pretty good job at taking some, some moral high ground on these issues. Um, I, I do think that China's move is part of a, a wider strategy globally. Yesterday, Daniel Crittenbrink, the Assistant Secretary for of state for East Asia and the Pacific gave a briefing where he said that America expects that, that China is going to ramp up its its pressure tactics on Taiwan and on anyone who's associated with Taiwan. We've, we've already seen uh, Nancy Pelosi was sanctioned. Um, the Lithuanian transport minister um, has been sanctioned. Uh, a number of Politicians are planning to come here from around the world, from Canada, Germany, UK, and it's likely that they'll face similar measures. And then there's the question of how the international community is going to respond to that, and if collectively it can coordinate some kind of response to China rather than Taiwan going going out on a limb and, and doing it on its own. So, Brian, a coordinated response there. Uh, that might actually be helpful in that sense. I mean, that would definitely lead to more pressure. I think it's probably true that some Chinese politicians have some investment or links to Taiwan's economy or businesses, uh, but I don't think it would be effective just on its own. I mean, particularly the big fish, I think, is the U.S., because there's so many Chinese politicians that have links to the U.S., in fact, despite it being their geopolitical enemy. And moving on now, the use of the word Taiwan caused controversy after the Taiwanese organisers of the World Pride 2025 announced their ending preparations to host the event due to disagreements with Interpride, the group behind the global biennial event. Now, the organising committee, which consists of Kaohsiung Pride and Taiwan Pride, says there were major discrepancies between its stances on the event's naming, understandings of Taiwan's culture and expectations of what a World Pride event should look like. Now, according to the committee, the name World Pride 
Taiwan 2025 was used throughout the entire bidding process. And the name Taiwan was agreed on at a meeting of Interpride, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Kaohsiung Pride, shortly after it won the rights to host the event in November of last year. Now, Interpride shot back at that statement, taken to social media to say that it suggested using the name World Pride Kaohsiung Taiwan in line with long-standing World Pride traditions of using the host city name. Now, that's being disputed by the Taiwan organisers, who say Interpride had never given that naming option and the title World Pride Taiwan 2025 had been used throughout the entire process. So this, Brian, this is a bit of a murky story because, I mean, obviously someone is telling porky pies. <laughs> it's hard to know in this case. I mean, I've also heard some chatter that Kaohsiung Pride was not so organised, perhaps, and this led to some confusion. Uh, I think that remains to be clarified. Uh, but I think then in this case, it has definitely become politicised with, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs coming in and condemning the uh, pressure uh, or perceived pressure. And in this case, then, I think it is a question, particularly with Taiwan having legalised gay marriage and touting this as being the first in Asia to do so uh, as part of efforts sometimes to distinguish Taiwan from China in, as part of soft power. Uh, but it's not surprising that cross-strain issues loom in this in some form. Uh, what's also interesting is that Interpri, when they did announce that Taiwan had won the bid to host the event, they referred to Taiwan as a region, and that also provoked some people. And so I think it's not surprising that we continue to see controversies. And Nicola, do you think if they just simply stuck with World Pride Kaohsiung, none of this would have happened? Well, yeah, perhaps. But I mean, Taiwan's within its rights to, you know, assert what it wants to to call uh, this event. It's hosting it. And, and, you know, as they have said, all through the bidding process, they said that um, worldwide, they used the name Worldwide Taiwan. It, so, you know, why should they be... Um, pressure to change it now. The, the question remains as to whether they were um, coerced. And it's very unclear because you have two contradictory statements and and we don't really know what went on behind closed doors. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's a real shame that, that everything has um, collapsed because you know Taiwan really has a lot to celebrate uh, when it comes to promoting um, equality and and you know, equal rights for, for um, same-sex marriage, and and it really is an outlier in, in Asia. And you would hope that there would be some way to kind of get through this uh, this dispute and and to make it happen on on acceptable terms. I, I mean, it it does follow a pattern of this kind of uh, event or um, these kind of organizations being kind of overshadowed by uh, you know names and and what's called Taiwan and and how to designate Taiwan um, so you know it, it could it could be a misunderstanding or it could go much deeper there was a, a very good piece in foreign policy this week by someone called David Yu who who wrote about um, the, the problems that Interpride has been having or that um, gay rights organisations have been having in organising events in China, obviously. Uh, questions are hanging over the fate of Shanghai Pride. Um, the Federation of, of Gay Games has been, which should have been in Hong Kong this year, has been postponed. Um, there's also uh, the, the question of, of Interpride wanting to have consultative status with the United Nations. And it could be that, that this played into uh, discussions and that overshadowed uh, this particular event in some way, but we just don't know. It's, it's, 
um, with both sides saying different things, and it's pure speculation. So it wasn't a little issue, Brian. It could have been a big issue involving the United Nations. Yeah, I think so. I mean, any sporting competition of international stature that takes place in Taiwan or international event of various sorts, or in this case, the Pride Parade, is now politicized potentially in this way. I would have been amused, though, if it had been called Inter-Pride Chinese Taipei, despite taking place in Kaohsiung. <laughs> anyway, before we go this week, we've been talking about political visits too much recently, as far as I'm concerned. So I was personally rather happy to see that a Taiwanese-American Li Ya-ju was in town. Now, Ju was the winner of the latest season of the US television cooking competition, Master Chef Junior, and she was 10 years old at the time of filming three years ago. Now, like the visiting lawmakers and other politicos that have been here recently, she met with President Tsai Ing-wen. But unlike the other visitors, she also appeared in a cooking demonstration, and she did that with former health minister and the DPP's current Taipei mayoral candidate, Chen Shih-jong. Now, Chen uploaded a video on his YouTube page and it shows Ju making fried rice with pineapple, walnuts and shrimp balls and honey-roasted chicken with rice noodles. Now, Ju is also planning to dine at celebrity chef Andre Jung's two-star Michelin restaurant Raw in Taipei this week. So, of course, this was like... in Earlier this year, she won the competition when it was aired, but, of course, the programme in America was delayed by three years. That's right, and it is interesting timing. I mean, uh, for example, right now, Taiwanese food is seeing a moment in the U.S. with various high-profile Taiwanese restaurants opening... Uh, or even just wholesalers, for example, that provide the ingredients needed for Taiwanese food. And so that was not the case three years ago. So despite the fact that for uh, Chu, who won this contest three years ago, that it was delayed and, and it was publicized, which is pretty common, I think, with game shows, uh, that the results sometimes can be delayed for a year, two years, or et cetera. Um, maybe now is actually pretty good timing. Yeah, this is just the ultimate Taiwanese soft power, isn't it? I, I, I love this story. It's such a cute story. And well, well done to her, you know, being such a star at 13. Um, Brian's right. I think uh, Taiwanese cuisine is, is really kind of seeing a, um, having a moment um, globally. A friend recently sent me a, a, a picture of a boba tea shop that she'd found in Edinburgh, which made me, made me very happy. And, uh, you know, I don't think you'd have seen that a few years ago. And I, I think it's just, it's, a, it's an all round happy story. And I wish we could write more. More stories like that, although I, I feel absolutely shamed at my own cooking abilities compared to hers. Yeah, Brian, I was going to say, do you think it would have been better if she'd had, like, a member of the KMT, the DPP, and maybe another minor party doing her own little cooking <laughs> cooking competition? I, I've actually uh, thought so, too, actually. It is kind of interesting that she did appear with Chen Shizhong. I mean, I think it would have been much funnier, though, if been Chen Shizhong and Jiang Wan'an and her in the same room, and they're all cooking together. I think that would be a little awkward, but it would be, it'd be quite amusing. It would have been funnier. Definitely, yes. <laughs> but definitely would have been funnier. Yeah, And they could have had Vivian Huang as well. Oh, yeah, just, that's right. Just because they can. Yeah, that's true. All the type of mayoral candidates. And what about, Nicola, you mentioned bubble tea. But, I mean, in other countries, have you seen much Taiwanese cuisine and Taiwanese restaurants uh, as not to be confused with Chinese restaurants per se? Uh, well, I haven't really been able to travel much in the past few years, but I, I definitely have seen more of a, a presence of Taiwanese, specifically Taiwanese cuisine. Uh, I definitely saw it. I was recently in Australia and definitely saw it there. And... And you know it's, it's pretty widespread in the U.S. And I, I was I was kind of surprised that you know at that photo from Scotland. Scotland isn't exactly known for its, its exotic palate. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's great, um, and I think it will I, I think it will spread even wider and further. And it's a great way for Taiwan to kind of show its identity around the world. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I think it's interesting in that respect because like, bubble tea historically became sort of indistinct. Uh, people are not always sure where it's from. Sometimes people are not sure it's from Taiwan. But then now we do see much more Taiwanese cuisine emphasizes Taiwanese cuisine. I think it's also interesting in that way, though, that there's probably always going to be push and pull between what is perceived as authentic and what isn't. Uh, from my own experience, a lot of the overseas Taiwanese students in different parts of the world have their own preferred restaurant in different places. Um, but I think it's a. I think oftentimes the diaspora plays a role in opening up these restaurants too. I think it's a very wonderful thing. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Nicholas Smith, who comes from the land of the fried Mars bar. Not funny, but thanks for having me. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.